from 89.7 WUWN, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll explore some of the stereotypes and myths around human trafficking that can prevent systemic change. Because there is a disconnect between the vision or the narrative of trafficking and then the reality of trafficking, it means that the policy that's in place doesn't really address or target where trafficking is primarily happening. We'll head to Alice's garden to see what's still growing in the garden. Then we'll explore a book full of old photos of Milwaukee that shed light on what everyday life used to look like. To me, it's an art. It's just, it's way of seeing downtown in a way that is completely different from today. Plus, we'll look at some fun things to do in Wisconsin that are a bit off the beaten path. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. There are many misconceptions about what human trafficking looks like and who can be a victim. These ideas can prevent systemic change that could protect people from being trafficked. Dr. Sarah McKinnon is an associate professor in rhetoric, politics, and culture at UW-Madison. She's an expert on immigration and refugee issues, gender-based violence, and international global politics. She joins Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski to talk about breaking down stereotypes about human trafficking. A note to our listeners, this conversation includes the topic of sexual violence. So when we're specifically talking about human trafficking, our minds go to these long-standing imagery campaigns that you see on commercials, for example, or on posters at bus stops, this narrative of someone being snatched away. So what's the context of this long-standing imagery we associate with this issue, at least here in America? I mean, there is a longstanding history that I think is important to understand. So if we think about U.S. immigration laws, some of the earliest immigration laws were actually about uh, trafficking. There was this fear that white women would be trafficked into the United States or trafficked out of the United States. And so they were called the white slavery laws. Um, And so that idea, I think, undergirds a lot of discussions and imagery about trafficking today. And it's very different than the reality of trafficking um, in the contemporary context. Right. So let's get into that. What are some of the key preconceptions about human trafficking that are simply wrong? Yeah. So uh, one misperception is that the primary perpetrators of trafficking are men. Yes, men are perpetrators of trafficking, but women are absolutely involved in trafficking of other individuals as well. So that's one misconception. Um, There's another misconception that it primarily happens over or international borders. And that's a misconception that's also uh, false. Um, Trafficking happens within countries as well. And that's a really significant dynamic to consider and make sense of. There's a misperception that trafficking is largely about sex trafficking. And while sex trafficking is an important component of the landscape of trafficking, it's certainly not the only reason why uh, trafficking happens. And then lastly, there's a sense that trafficking happens just like you described by someone snatching an individual from the streets or from a, a place and Uh, effectively kidnapping them and putting them into um, a trafficking circle. 
the reality is that most traffickers groom their trafficking victims. And so there's a process of grooming that goes with that. Uh, it, it, it could even be someone that someone knows for a while um, in terms of the dynamic. And so those are some large narratives and misperceptions about trafficking that can make it then challenging to actually effectively address trafficking uh, from a policy standpoint. You mentioned our loose understanding or labels and definition is impeding policy changes or helping to address this properly. So how else does the, not just the imagery, but the rhetoric and language used around human trafficking harmful to survivors? Because there is a disconnect between the vision or the narrative of trafficking and then the reality of trafficking, it means that the policy that's in place doesn't really address or target where trafficking is primarily happening. And so we don't, for example, get a lot of attention paid to the agricultural industry and the prevalence of trafficking in that industry um, when we're talking about trafficking. This is a, a place where you know, this happens because there's so much attention to sex trafficking. There's so much attention to, to trafficking of youth that adult men, for example, aren't considered a part of the picture of trafficking. So this is, that's, I think, one place where we can really see that happen. In terms of like policy related to immigration, the United States does have protections in place for victims of trafficking, immigration protections. So uh, contexts where um, someone can apply for uh, basically a non-immigrant visa and then a later a permanent residency. But in order to do that, um, the individual has to be working with law enforcement to address the context of trafficker. So typically it's law enforcement that would bring someone's name forward for these visas, either the U visa or the T visa. And they have to be working with law enforcement to address it. And the, the reality is a, a lot of people who are trafficked are just not in a context where they feel um, secure enough or even have access to law enforcement in order to, to make that happen. And then there's a lot of fear of what that means to um, continue to communicate and participate in the, you know, in the criminal trial, for example, or in what, you know, the sentencing, the processing. So that becomes a, a, another challenge for individuals to receive protections. Another thing where I think there's a lot of confusion is the difference between trafficking and smuggling. Can you get into that a little more? Yeah. And I'll say at the outset that it's much blurrier. The line between trafficking and smuggling is much blurrier than the vision of it, especially in the contemporary context. But for a loose definition, we can say that trafficking happens when someone is put in a context of force for work situation. So there's a lack of consent to that. That context of consent is really important. The force is really important. Smuggling happens when someone pays uh, an individual to move them across borders. And smuggling is typically in a context of across international borders. So in the context of immigration today, especially in the United States, and especially as we're thinking about the Americas, a significant portion of individuals who ultimately may arrive at the U.S. Mexico border to apply for asylum 
probably have had to work with a smuggler at some point to, to make that movement. Um, just because of the context of immigration today, it's really hard to move across international borders um, without some guidance. Criminal organizations are now highly involved in that process and insist that uh, migrants pay them to move across those borders. And so individuals who are using a smuggler who kind of are in this industry are highly precarious to human trafficking as well. And so this is a, a dynamic that I think is important to consider that, that connection between um, trafficking and smuggling. So there's a lot of discussion of the prevalence of trafficking for immigrants. What forms of trafficking are most prevalent for immigrants and refugees, especially in the United States here? Yeah, so I had mentioned that the agricultural industry is is really significant um, in, in this context because of who is arriving to as a laborer in the United States. But most recently, there's been a lot of attention paid to the experiences of unaccompanied minors that were a part of the kind of immigration reforms and policy implementations um, since 2014. So Central American unaccompanied minors. And one of the things that some investigative reporting has recently uncovered is that a lot of youth that are in the program for unaccompanied minors who now are living with a sponsor in the United States are actually very young, 14, 15, and working in some of the U.S.'s biggest corporations. So, um the cereal that you eat right now may have been packaged by an unaccompanied minor who is now working, going to school during the day and then working at night. And so um, there were some reports, particularly by the New York Times about a month ago, that really um, shed light on this context. And the question arises, is is this force? Is this voluntary? And so here is another moment where we can see some of the blurry lines between um, uh, smuggling, trafficking, consent, force, some of these dynamics that make it really hard to uh, address through policy the realities of the situation. So I'm learning more about all the nuances and the issues how that crosses gender, ages, can you share some context on how human trafficking has traditionally been viewed and handled in the United States? Like, for example, gender is not a category in the U.N. refugee definition that the U.S. uses to evaluate asylum seekers' claims. So how have we treated refugees fleeing gender-related persecution or when it's related to human trafficking? Yeah, in a lot of ways, the conversation about asylum and trafficking have been quite separate. Um, there are separate immigration protections in the United States, although certainly victims of trafficking can apply for asylum. Uh, it's typically not that they are applying for asylum because they've been trafficked. They're applying for asylum because they flee persecution in their home country um, and are seeking refugee protection on, on those grounds. And so in, in some ways, I think that's one of the challenges that these programs have been quite separate. And it's interesting because there is a lot of attention paid to sex trafficking in the United States, a lot of concern, a lot of policy work around that. 
And yet when we look at the context for women who are fleeing gender-based violence in their home country, so in this context, I'm talking about rape and sexual assault by military officials or police, decade-long experiences of intimate violence um, at the hands of one's husband um, in a context where you can't go to the police and say, you know, please help me. You can't expect that a judge will say, yes, you can divorce your husband. These are just not contexts that are that are possible um, and a, a range of other types of gender based violence. So the context is such that for asylum seekers fleeing that form of these forms of violence, gender based violence, there really aren't a lot of protections. And so we have a lot of attention paid to sex trafficking, um, but when a woman who is fleeing gender-based violence comes to a US official and says, I, I can't return to my home country, I will experience violence, um, I fear persecution, the US's answer has been largely to turn their backs to women fleeing gender-based violence. There's this obvious disconnect what else is holding us back from taking gender-based violence seriously? You know, is it our our frame of reference that we look at when it comes to this? I think there are a number of things that are playing out, but I think with gender-based violence in particular, it's sticky because U.S. policymakers, U.S. officials cannot say that gender-based violence doesn't happen in this country. Right? When one in four women are sexually assaulted and will experience intimate violence at some point in their lives. And so that dynamic, I think, is really challenging um, when someone arrives at the U.S. border and says, I, I am fleeing this form of violence in my country. Please give me, um, give me refuge. Because if U.S. officials were to, then perhaps the mirror would have to be turned back on the national context. The other dynamic, and this is kind of more of my suspicious uh, lens coming into, into play, but I also believe it's about a fear of um, black and brown bodies and uh, the fear of reproductivity and the changing face of the U.S. nation. That if we were to say uh, as a country that fleeing intimate violence and sexual assaults, these are forms of persecution that we will recognize as political persecution, then that would really give space for many, many women around the world to arrive and seek protection on those grounds. And in my research, always at the base of uh, the kind of politicians' ideas about gender-based violence and immigration protections, there is a concern about the fear of brown and black reproductivity and the fear of the changing face of the U.S. nation. So in many ways, this is about whiteness. Um, I think that's a really significant analysis to overlay, especially when we look at the trajectory of some of these protections. Well, Sarah, I want to thank you so much for helping us break some of this down. I know there's so much more to discuss, but thanks so much for your time. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Dr. Sarah McKinnon is an associate professor at UW-Madison. She spoke with Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski earlier this year. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. 
Later in the show, we'll explore a book full of old photos of Milwaukee that shed light on everyday life in the city. But first, we're heading to Alice's Garden to see what's still growing and what's being put to bed. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. It may seem like the growing season has come to an end, but there's still a lot of life going on in the garden. Inside the soil and even above it, things are continuing to grow and change. And at Alice's Garden, this circle of life is on full display. I headed over to the garden earlier this month to chat with executive director and dig-in contributor Venus Williams. I met up with her as she was pulling up some of the largest Brussels sprouts I have ever seen. It's really interesting um, listening to the garden right now because so much has changed since the last time we were here together. Yes. I love the mixture of the dryness, right? At this time of year, the garden represents life and death coexisting to me in the most beautiful of ways. So the letting go, right? So we still have what appears to be death, but if you look closely, and that death is so much life, because look, there are the seeds for next year's planting. So is it really death? So the garden this time of year, I just think more accurately than any other time of year represents all of those incredible analogies for our life journey. Um, You can't have the joy and the beauty and the nourishment without knowing how to prepare for what's to come. So yeah, it's one of my favorite times of year. So we have all of this dryness and the seeds in this tithinia, which is Mexican sunflower, which is one of the last things to go, but we, still also have so much life. So whether we're talking about this incredible aromatic lemon thyme. Mm, too bad you all can't smell that. <laughs> so lemon thyme, rue, lavender, sage, all of these herbs that are still thriving. And then today, you're gonna harvest these Brussels sprouts. Look at them! And we'll roast these for tonight's dinner. At least some of them, I won't need all of them. And so on one hand, you can look at a 60 plus degree November day in Wisconsin and say, isn't this lovely? And it is lovely, but it's also scary. For me, as I think about my great, 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 grandchildren and how the earth is continuing to warm. Um, So on one hand, we are recognizing those of us who garden and farm that in another 20 years, the zones will have changed, right? What is zone four and zone five, they're becoming warmer. And what used to be an annual in our zone 
some of them will become perennials. So there's that reality as I both harvest and put pieces of this garden to bed. And yet if I'm totally in the moment, I can't help but celebrate the fact that there is still so much alive and growing at Alice's Garden Urban Farm. There really is so much uh, life here still, uh, aside from, you know, the seeds and and the things kind of for next year's garden. If you look around, uh, so we're looking at Brussels sprouts right now, but uh, there's a variety of different cabbages. There's kale that seems to be coming up really well. I was surprised by the thyme and the sage. Yes, sage and thyme both are two of the herbs that I will continue to harvest through at least the first couple of weeks of December, if not um, through all of December. It just really depends upon the weather, right? The frost, how much more frost. So now by December, they're not growing, but they're still standing and they're still edible and they're still very beneficial uh, as far as harvesting, cooking with, drinking teas. I will drink fresh sage and thyme tea well into December. So if we look at, for me, herbally, what's still growing, that also tells me what I should be consuming. Those are such important herbs for winter immune boost health. Not to mention sage is used in all of my hot flash teas. So <laughs> if you have sage in your garden and you have hot flashes, um, <clears throat> start drinking some. You'll see a difference. So as we look at uh, what's kind of already passed in the garden, I'm looking at uh, some tomatoes that have uh, certainly dried up a bit here. What all are you going to just kind of let lay here? And, and what are you gonna be taking out of the ground? Do you take anything out? Right, everyone puts their gardens to bed differently. So you can see under our feet, I have all of this area used to be Brussels sprouts. So I've already harvested the Brussels sprouts that were here and the, the leaves that I did not cook, because you can still cook um, and use Brussels sprout greens as you do the other greens. So I took some, but I'm leaving some as a mulch for the garden bed and also still for food for the creatures who will continue to feast on what remains. So if you look around here at Alice's garden, you'll see that some people totally clear out their plots and I understand why but I try to teach um, them not to do that because there's still life in the soil and there's still soil to be nourished so if we let things naturally go to compost then it'll be better and healthier for our soil the other thing that I will do as we look at some of the different varieties of kale so I have about six varieties of kale that are still going strong and I will leave the kale where it is. I'll harvest some, I'll harvest almost all of it, but if we don't have a very harsh winter, come March that kale is just going to pick up where it left off. And so I'm going to get about two or three more harvests from all of these different varieties of kale before the end of April. And then they will go to seed a bit and then I'll plant them again. We've gotten used to doing away with things that don't appear to be 
useful any longer. But if we just let them rest, so just like we are mammals, and we are supposed to do a bit more resting um, throughout the winter months, the same is true for the plants. So I never pull up my kale plants. I never pull up my mustards. I never pull up my collards or my broccoli. I just let them remain in the ground and then they start all over again come spring. One of the things in, in like listening to the garden that definitely is different in springtime there are all of these insects yes, that you can I hear knew you were around. Say that. <laughs> what is still kind of existing around the garden and what's gone dormant for the season? As far as the birds and you know obviously so many of our birds fly south so they have gone and a lot of the insects have gone under so some of them are bur burrowing I can say that word and then others have completed their lifespan you know we don't think about that there are insects that complete their lifespan within one season some of those insects have already laid their eggs so they may be done, that's one way to put it, but they have already left behind their offspring. And so some of the eggs are, you see our landscape timbers? So some are burrowed under there. It's another reason why we leave some of the plants here. So some of our sisters and siblings in creation, they are no longer here with us in the garden, but there are birds that are here in Wisconsin year round. So that's why it's also important to me, you see the sunflower plants and we have some corn stalks that are still standing. We leave those so that um, we can continue to feed other members of creation. As you're looking at uh, the upcoming winter, I've, I've heard that there might be El Nino, that is something that right. I've heard might be happening. Do you change how you garden based on what's uh, coming up? No, I actually do not. I always say, and I just said this to a gardener who just left, nature knows what to do. The, the plants know what to do. If, if we have a very intense winter, then I won't have all of these incredible green vegetables re-sprouting in March and I'm okay with that. If we don't have a very harsh winter then I welcome whatever the land has to offer. So depending upon who you listen to, I hear that the Farmer's Almanac says that we're gonna have a very harsh winter and then some of my friends who say they know a little better think it's not going to be. It honestly doesn't matter to me. I'm gonna put my gardens to bed in the same way um, that I would no matter what my colleagues are forecasting. Sure. I, I think like there's this perception that you're gonna walk into the garden, it's November, and it is just dead everywhere, and you're just seeing little stalks and all of that, but, but really there's still so much here. It's such a field of nourishment. We think about the seasons being so distinct, and we often talk about how short the Wisconsin growing season is. But if you really practice three or four season gardening, you can get those gardens in, in the state of Wisconsin. And, and all of this greenery is showing us and defying those myths. Now, uh, I'm gonna ask you the question I always ask you. What have you been reading? Right now, I am reading 
ecopreneuring. Did I say that right? Yes. <laughs> so, um, an ecological based entrepreneurs book. I, I just got it. <laughs> ecopreneuring. And I think this, the tagline is creating for purpose and the planet and not just for profit. It's something like that. And it again reminds me of my relationship with the earth. Yes, I am an entrepreneur, but I am also a steward of the earth. And you can do both in a way that is just so life-giving for you and for the planet. All right. Well, thank you as always for allowing me to come to the garden, check everything out. Thank you for coming out and happy November, everyone. <laughs> Venus Williams is the executive director of Alice's Garden and the Fondy Food Center. Every month, she joins us to talk about all things gardening and healthy foods in a series we call Dig In. You can find our previous conversations at wuwm.com. We want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation that you'd like to hear on the show, give our community connection line a call. The number is 414 251 8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lake effect. Coming up, we'll look at some fun things to do in Wisconsin that are a bit off the beaten path. But first, we'll look at a book full of images of Milwaukee life from the mid-1900s, taken by everyday photographers. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Since 2016, Adam Levin has been collecting images of mid-century Milwaukee, from estate sales, donations, and even eBay. Altogether, these images create a catalog that documents Milwaukee life through the lens of everyday people. Earlier this year, this collection was released in the form of Kodachrome Milwaukee, a book of about 150 images documenting decades-old festivals, Bucks games, house parties, and much more. Levin joins Lake Effect Sam Woods to share how he found these images and what the project means to him. You've recently published a book called Kodachrome Milwaukee, which uh, is a collection of old images from 20th century Milwaukee and the people who lived here who were mostly just living their lives, whether at parades or at festivals or even in their own, in their own basements. Um, some photos were shot by a photographer. Others were just regular people who enjoyed taking photos on the street or um, in their homes. But before we get into what's in the book itself, uh, what does Kodachrome mean? Like, what does the word mean? Um, Kodachrome is the brand name for a color reversal film introduced by Eastman Kodak in 1935. It was one of the first successful color materials and was used for both cinematography and still photography. And for many years, Kodachrome was widely used for professional color photography, especially for images intended for publication in print. 
So, so in other words, this is kind of a, a type of film used for old um, photographs that um, now would live on slides that you had to, they were usually living in someone's basement or, right. or in a, a historical society or library or something and mm-hmm. collecting dust and you yep. had to kind of digitize them for this book. Correct. Um, I have found these images at estate sales, donations from families who, for whatever reason, did not want the slides anymore. I found some images on eBay, too. And um, what fascinates me is these images have been sitting around for decades, and nobody's been able to see them for either for whatever reason. Um, some people don't have the time or want to purchase the technology to digitize them. Mm-hmm. It's a hobby of mine. Uh, I actually have two scanners. I mean, that's how hardcore I am into it. <laughs> so, um, but the families who donate these slides to me, I offer to digitize them and put them on a flash drive so they can have a copy. If they're going to give them to me, the least I can do is scan them and give them a flash drive so they can see these images. Yeah, I wanted to put 200 images in this book, mm-hmm. but... The publisher's limit was 150, so I had to cut that down. Yeah. Well, let's get into what the what is in the book. So um, I know when I was looking through it, there's images that someone today living in Milwaukee might might recognize, and and uh, or, or of events that uh, someone living in Milwaukee might recognize, like Brady Street Festival, German Fest, a Bucks game. Um, but there's also images of. Uh, things like basement parties and just right. kind of like people shooting pool, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but can you talk a little bit about what's in this book? Sure. I mean, there's random chapters. There are 15 ch- chapters in all. Um, we have uh, a photographer that roamed the streets of Milwaukee back in from the 40s till the early 90s. His name is Ray Choperay. Um And that's the first chapter. Then I have State Fair, Parks, um, Speedway, uh, Brady Street, German Fest, basement parties, as you mentioned, downtown parades, the Milwaukee Arena before it became the Mecca. Um, there's a couple Bucks game slides in there from, I want to say, 1970 to 72. Mm-hmm. Um, we have uh, the Domes, Aerial views of downtown from the 1950s. Uh, I have just one chapter that's just random images of Milwaukee. Mayfair Mall's Ice Chalet, which was in existence from 1973 till 1986. Capitol Court, which no longer exists. Um, And uh, the last chapter is about County Stadium in the 1950s. So um, there's a lot of a lot of stuff, random images here. Um, again, I could have easily done 200, but that just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So. yeah. In in addition to having a bunch of different types of uh, events, as as you mentioned, that are here, there's a bunch of different like, people just doing kind of random everyday things, right? So you right. mentioned basement parties and yeah. shooting pool, but then also just you know, someone like having a cigarette in their car or something mm-hmm. or, yeah. or just like, you know, walking around at a, at a, at a parade. And I know we were, we were talking about before, um, that you have, uh, you, you've had a long 
interest in history yourself. And so those mm-hmm. kinds of, when you see an image of someone sitting in the park, for example, you're kind of wondering like, okay, what was their, what was their day like? What brought right. them, brought, brought them to that, um, to that point. But you mentioned, uh, Ray Choperet was one of the, one of the photographers that we, we do know of. Um, and a lot of these were just unknown, unknown photographers. But what do we know about, about these photographers in general and the types of lives that they lived and uh-huh. their interests and, and all that? Ray was the only photographer in this book that roamed the streets on a daily basis and took photos. Today, everybody does that. But back in the (laughs) 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and part of the 80s, people didn't really just roam Wisconsin Avenue and take photos. But to me, it's an art. It's just, it's way of seeing downtown in a way that is completely different from today. Um, The other images are family slides um, of random places that the family went to and they were not professional. They were just doing it for fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've mentioned that um, there was a number of images that did not make it into the book. I think you said you wanted to put in 200. Can you talk about the images that maybe that you wanted to um, have in the book uh, but didn't make it? Um, again, they're just random images that could have fit in some of these chapters. But some of the reasons uh, that they didn't make the book is because of the size and with the publisher, it didn't mm-hmm. work sure. with them. And um, I was a little concerned that they kept cutting photos that I wanted in the book. I, you know, I mean, I have to have that one in there. I'm thinking to myself. So mm-hmm. it was like trying to choose, you know, who's your favorite. But uh, finally, you know, I just had to get it down to 150. So. Yeah, I mean, I could put on a slideshow for a week, I think, with all yeah. the images I have. So. Yeah. Well, you have an event coming up at, at Boswell, right, where some of those some of those images that didn't make it into the book will we'll see the light of day. Yeah. Um, the book launch is uh, July 21st at Boswell from 6.30 to 7.30. And for the first half an hour, I'm going to talk about um, Kodachrome and uh, my hobby, um, and the second half, I am going to show about, I'm not going to get through 200 images, but that's what I have on my flash drive. Um, and I don't think anybody wants to sit around for that long to you see 200 know. images. <laughs> but um, You were interested in those images. I, Maybe yeah, someone else would True. Um, so I'm going to show those, and um, those are the images that did not make the book. So unfortunately, I cannot use a old time projector because something could go wrong with those. They're so old. I don't want to take that risk. So uh, I would love to be there with a projector and And dim the lights and and have have the hum of the machine. Right. Like back in the 60s and 70s, how they did that. Um, But we're going to do this with a computer. Um, ah, shame. 21st century. I know, century. but yeah. I can't take the risk of having Ooh. something go wrong with a projector. <laughs> I want to I ask you, you know, there's, you've been collecting these images since uh, 2016, right? Yeah, I started really getting into it about that time, yeah. you know. Um, and I just, I like history, but I find that these images 
you know, haven't seen the light of day, you know, for decades. And, you know, there's some interesting images online, but, you know, those are images that I've, I've seen over mm-hmm. and over, you know, anybody can go to Pinterest, anyone can go to the UWM site and pull photos, but I find it more of a organic way of showing these images uh, that should be showcased. Yeah. Um, Well, I want to ask while, you know, since 2016, while you've been collecting images for this book, um, or at least that became part of this book, what were you like reflecting on? What was going through your mind? Um, Were there, do you see Milwaukee in a new way? Like you see a building that was in, in one of these images and you kind of, you know, you, you, you see your image almost on, on that kind of present day, what you're, what you're looking at. Um, to me, it change your perspective at all, maybe. Um, to me, it's more of, oh, that was there mm-hmm. before, because I'm always curious what was there b- before. Yeah, uh, I mean, what was there? I mean, what was where we are today? You know, um, it' just interesting to see what it used to be, and a time that I wasn't even alive yet. You know, so, and then when I do find images that are closer to uh, when. I was born in the early 70s. Um, that fascinates me too because um, I only have vague memories like anyone else who was a child, you know, of their city and their family at that time. So um, so it, it just uh, it fascinates me, but I don't expect everybody to feel that way, you know. Nobody's required to. It's just sure. It's just a hobby of mine. Well, thank you, Adam, for sharing both your time with me today and, and on Lake Effect, as well as your hobby with uh, the rest of us through this through this book. It's uh, I can say that I enjoyed flipping through it, and as a well, history you. appreciator of history myself, it's it's works like these that bring that kind of history alive and make it accessible. And I just want to say I, I appreciate you and oh, your you. time that went into this work. Well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Adam Levin is a local historian and author of the book Kodachrome Milwaukee. He first spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods in July. If you're looking for new ways to experience Wisconsin, a local writer's latest book covers just that. Danelle Gay is the author of 100 Things to Do in Wisconsin Before You Die. In her book, Gay details places to visit like Heritage Hill in Green Bay and festivals to attend like Elmwood's UFO Days. WUWM's Eddie Morales asks Gay about her statewide adventures and how she plans to give back to the community. You've been writing about travel for more than a decade. What did you do before writing, and what led to the creation of your latest book, which is 100 Things to Do in Wisconsin Before You Die? So before this, I had a restaurant and a catering company with my mom for about 10 years in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. So as a professional chef, that kind of ties in nicely as I travel and checking out restaurants and the different, you know, kind of fun ways that people play with food. This book came along during COVID, you know, when the world shut down, I reached out to my friend, Sarah, who's co-owner of the Midwest Travel Network. And I said, you know, I'm stuck in Wisconsin. You're stuck in Iowa. We have friends in Nebraska, Illinois, all of these places. What if together we wrote a book and we did it on the highways and byways of our states? We did a road trip book. So we did. The 12 of us got together. We wrote a road trip book that hit the bestseller list in the middle of a global pandemic when nobody was traveling. 
And then everybody started to notice us because more than 40% of our peers had quit. So different publishers started reaching out and I got this contract from Reedy Press. And I was like, yes, I want to do this. And I had an idea of exactly how I was going to do it. Then I went to our governor's conference on tourism and totally changed how I ended up doing the book. (laughs) How did that change? Well, I didn't want it to be a list of places you could just Google, but I learned at the governor's conference that we got less um, COVID tourism relief dollars than other Midwest states. So I shifted my list and focused more on mom and pop places, um, living history museums, nonprofits, things like that, that if we weren't going to see as much money from the federal government, we probably wouldn't see as much from the state. I thought maybe I could be a COVID tourism, you know, relief fund and Besides getting people into these places, as I've been doing book signing events around the state of Wisconsin, I've been donating profits back then to those same nonprofits, food pantries, um, veterans groups, even public libraries. And the first thing that's listed in the book is eat at a Wisconsin supper club like Cantafio's Buckhorn Steakhouse. Can you tell me about your experiences there and how that place honors veterans? We have almost 300 supper clubs in Wisconsin and they run the gambit from the very rough, like just right out of post, you know, prohibition, what you would experience all the way up to luxury experiences. Um, Cantafios, it's kind of mid range. I mean, you're going to see the wood paneling, they'll have fried frog legs on the menu, incredible people, but they're a gold star family. They lost their son, Ryan, almost 20 years ago. They do free meals for veterans, and then they do different other things to help support the community too. It's kind of like a living honorarium to Ryan. So it's, it's really a neat place and they're incredible people. There are a lot of things to do in this book that I discovered by reading it, like Elmwood's UFO Days Festival and Airbnb at the Wisconsin Maritime Museum. What was your process for creating the list and what did you discover when creating it? I knew a lot of places on the perimeter of the state from doing the road trip book where I covered like the Great River Road, Door County Coastal Byway. I really worked with um, different tourism organizations, chambers of commerce, um, convention and visitor bureaus in the middle of the state to find other things that kind of fit what I was looking for. So partnering with some of the different destinations to get ideas, as well as asking my readers, because they're a great source so many people go places I haven't. Some people help to bring ideas to my list. But yeah, things like we have three UFO festivals. So Elmwood's UFO festival is the longest running. I'll be doing a book signing there in August and my teenager's coming. She doesn't know it yet, but she's going to be wearing Dealey Boppers, uh, green tool skirt and silver t-shirt that says we're just visiting like I will. We're going to match. Um <laughs> So things that are fun, things that help create memories and things that support different, you know, neighbors and communities within our own state. I really talk about agricultural tourism in the book. We lose one family farm in Wisconsin a day. So there's many ways we can support it just besides going to that farmer's market. If you eat farm to fork, and I talk about that in the book, um, eating farm to fork at a restaurant that locally supports 10 to 15 different farmers to get their produce and their meat and their cheese and all of that, that really makes a difference to supporting your communities as well as doing those goofy things like putting on the waiter, standing out in that cranberry bog like the ocean spray guy, or even things like goat yoga, going to the pumpkin patches, the corn mazes, all of these are things that we can do to help support our Wisconsin farmers. How difficult was it to narrow the list down to just 100? Oof. I mean, I could have written a book, thousand things to do easily. So it was 
balancing things throughout the state, considering different times of the year, and then everyone from families with little kids to the empty nesters, you know, trying to create a mix that touches a little bit of everybody. The book is divided by sections like food and drink and music and entertainment. The culture and history section is the largest in the book. Was that intentional? I touch a little bit in the introduction about my mom and how she would make everything an adventure. She would always hear people say, oh, wait until the kids are older. And she'd be like, no, there's never a better time than now. Everything can be fun and a learning experience. That's what she taught me. And especially if you have kids, I mean, you can go there and then you can go there the very next season or the very next year and they'll pick up something entirely different. So we are so blessed in Wisconsin with all the different ethnic groups and the different industries. We had logging and mining and fishing, so many different things. It's amazing what you can actually learn here, but yet still have fun when you do it. Is there anything that stands out to you specifically that when you visited like a certain museum or a certain cultural aspect of something that's on the list that really is profound, that really that you learned something? I'm sure there's a lot, but is there anything that at this moment sticks out? Well, a couple of things. First of all, in Milwaukee, we were at um, America's Black Holocaust Museum. I took my teenager and their best friend who is black. And so two teenagers for an hour and a half, incredibly quiet. I, I've never seen them that quiet. It was an incredible experience. It's an very well done from pre-African slave trade all the way up to President Obama. And the conversations that were started in the car on the way home were incredible. So that was very profound to me. Um, and then the very first picture in the book is a young Mr. Murphy in Green Bay at Heritage Hill. He's wearing a uniform, was working at the fort, and he had just raised the flag and was saluting it. And so at 16, he's one of the three of the Murphy kids that works there now. But it made me realize that was the average age for almost the last 300 you know, years in this area of our soldiers, a 16-year-old kid. And so I think that's an incredibly powerful picture. That was one of my favorite in the whole book. And you mentioned that um, you write about your mom and the book is dedicated to your mom and your family. How did your family from your upbringing and up to your home today, how did they contribute to the creation of this book? So the seeds that my mom planted in my head and then being a parent myself who has a kid that loves to learn, going out, experiencing different things. um, We were kind of like weekend road trip warriors, you know, it'd be like, what are we going to go look for today? Or what do we want to try this time? Or always up to try something new, experiment and have fun. So being able to try and pull something like that together as a list for other people to literally just check stuff off as they go, that was going to be a fun experience and challenge. You mentioned book signings and you've been hosting them. You'll be doing so through early September. Um, Can you talk about your experience so far doing those and where can people find out about your signing schedule? I've uh, done, I want to say, over 50 book events since March for, or April 1st um, with this book. You can find all the information travelingcheesehead.com slash book dash events. So I have it all on my website. There's a tab for it right on the top, and it shows you where I'm going to be and when and who the money that day goes to from the profits of the book. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it, Danelle. Thank you so much for having me. Danelle Gay is the author of 100 Things to Do in Wisconsin Before You Die. She spoke with WUWM's Annie Morales earlier this year. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, you can download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. 
Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn about the unusual dog respiratory illness that has veterinarians stumped. Plus, this week's Bubbler Talk explores the life and accomplishments of the innovative figure Milwaukee's Enderis Park neighborhood is named after. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect, on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.